0: Section 12 of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Dixon. KimDixonVoices.com Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie Book 2, Chapter 4 A Boat, A Boat Unto the Ferry Oh, where will I get a good sailor to take my helm in hand? Old Ballad. September is shining upon Crowbeck as upon Piccadilly. Glorious September's last golden hours are lingering still. A boat comes peacefully floating on the buoyant waters of Tarndale. A young woman is sculling. Her pink dress, her broad back, her bright red curls are familiar to us by this time. She is strong and used to the task and the boat makes way rapidly. A fat gentleman in knickerbockers and a garb of many colors is steering, while a handsome young man dressed in white, with an amber tie and a broad white felt hat, is lolling in the bows, languidly running his slim fingers through the water. Delightful morning, nothing like a fine September, says a stout gentleman heartily, giving a jerk to the rudder as he pulls at his watch with the other hand. Take care, Uncle Bolsover. you're running us in, cries the girl in her loud, not unmusical voice. Take care, Uncle Bol, says the young man with a drawl. You have been steering quite straight till now, and Tempy too has done very well. I like to float smoothly along with no jerks. Don't talk nonsense, Charlie says the girl, looking round at him with her bright blue eyes. Remember, you have to scold back all the way. Uncle Bolsover has by this time got out his watch with some effort, for it is very large and tightly wedged into his belt. One o'clock, says he. Time's up. By Jove, there's Joe fishing under the pine trees. Capital! Hello, Joe. You are to come back to lunch. Tempe won't stop. She says she has to go home. And good-natured Uncle Bolsover, with another jerk of the rudder, turns the boat's head to shore with many cheerful signs and hellos. Joe comes forward quietly from his station under the pine trees and begins to wind his tackle. Got anything in your basket, Jocelyn? asks the languid youth. The words are carried clear across the water. Joe, for answer, lifts the cover of his shabby basket which is filled with silver to the brim. He was out by six, says Tempe, who dwells on her brother's achievements with sisterly pride. Then, with a dash of the oars, the girl turns the boat's head in towards the little promontory where her brother is standing. Some charm, delicate shifting, incandescent, falls upon the lake and its banks, upon the swallows, still darting in long curves along the water. Upon the people in the boat, upon Uncle Bolsover, and smiling Tempy and silent Charlie, upon the old manor farm across the lake with its spreading trees all changing for September. Everything is lovely on every side. Lambdale is divided into tender shadows, and Crow Craig stands piled between the lights. A thousand, thousand flashing ripples seem floating up to meet the boat from the far end of the lake where the hall chimneys are to be seen smoking for luncheon, and farther still are the roofs and gables of Friars Tarndale beyond the elms. At the foot of Crowbeck, the little promontory is starting out from land, shaded by a grove of pines. Between their straight stems springs a wilderness of flowers and feathery grasses, tangling and delicate, and tasted by the droning bees all the summer long. Here the young fisherman, motionless for hours past, has been established with his tackle, just stepping from light to light into the shadow as it slid from beneath his feet. A little farther on was the landing place by the boathouse, where the placeboat, fastened by a rusty chain, was bobbing and basking on the water among a shoal of minnows. As Uncle Bolsover was carefully steering in and looking over his shoulder for posts ahead, Tempe rode slowly and more slowly. Oh, dear, for the last time, Charlie, she said with a sigh. You are going. They are coming back. Everything is to be different. Not everything, muttered Charlie in a low voice. Some things won't change. And he looked hard at Tempe's face. It was Charlie's image of home, of conscience, of truth in life, almost the only one he had. She, too, looked up. She scarcely understood him at first. Then, suddenly, the girl's heart began to beat. She forgot her boat, forgot her oars, and Uncle Bolsover. The whole lake seemed flowing, upheaving in some strange sympathy. She caught a crab and would have fallen backwards if Charlie Bolsover had not leant forward, seized the oars with one hand, and pulled Tempe back with the other. "'Take care!' cries Joe from the shore. "'What are you thinking of, Tempe?' by jove that was a narrow escape my dear pipes uncle bolsover starting forward and half upsetting the boat in the meadow just beyond the pines george tyson who is at work with his scythe looks up hearing the splash of oars and leaves his gleaming circles of steel and feathering grass to come down to help to pull them in but before he can reach the landing place, Charlie Bolsover, with more agility than might have been expected from such dazzling white flannel, is already out and standing on a jutting rock, holding the boat chain, of which he throws the end to George. "'Joe, you row back. There's a good fellow,' says Charlie, standing firm on the shore and helping out Tempy. "'I left some books up at the place. I'll be back with them directly.' Joe gives one of his shaggy glances, deliberately shoulders his basket, and without more ado steps into the boat. The squire looks lightly perturbed. Thank ye, George, says he abruptly, in return for George's rustic salutation from the shore. Don't be longer than you can help, Charlie. And Uncle Bolsover again looks at his watch, as if to make up by extra punctuality for any lack of prudence. Charlie's feelings for Tempy have been discussed by the family conclave before now, and indeed Aunt Fanny is not against the match from her own point of view, but they all feel that the colonel's prejudices are not to be disregarded. However, the squire reflects that this is Charlie's last day. He is going back to Oxford at once. The colonel himself could not object to his fetching his books. So the two young people are left standing side by side for the last time in the fragrant shade of the pine tree's promontory. On the opposite shore of the lake, Tarndale Village climbs the mountain sides just where they divide into a gorge. Sometimes, as now, this gorge is shining with light and innumerable reflections. Sometimes it is covered by mists and silver shadow. In stormy weather, waterfalls suddenly stream down the steep sides of the mountain, dashing in white flashing lines from rock to rock. But on fine days, the channels are dry, the lake lies calm, the boats put out, the fisherman with his sail floats by on his way to the creek where the trout lie sleeping, the swallows swim in the sweet air, the cows from the manor farm come out straggling knee-deep into the water the sweet demure intoxication of the place and time seems to reach to the very heart of all things animate and inanimate george tyson the farmer's son who is something midway between those two conditions might have seemed a loutish fellow in london streets but to-day as he stands with his gleaming scythe mowing the grass on the slope of the crowbeck meadow any painter of dreams might have taken him for a figure of mythology, a young god of country things, a lingerer from the golden age. For a minute he looks up at the two as they pass along out of the shade of the pines, skirting the meadows by the path that leads to the place, and then he goes on with his work. Tempy herself might have stood for some blooming nymph of the hills. Her thick auburn locks were piled and twisted round her head. Her dress was of gingham. A rough straw hat shaded her smiling eyes. A greater contrast than the two cousins, who suited each other so well, could scarcely have been found. Charlie Bolsover was dressed in the extreme of fashion, with every charm by which art could distract from natural good looks. He was handsome, dark, slender. He affected a manner even more than fashionably soft and modulated joe once said that charlie's hair was velvet his eyes black satin his coat plush and his manners silky but such as he was jewelry lavender water jim crackery notwithstanding he seemed the most interesting person in all the world to the young nymph looking up so sadly with her innocent blue eyes for the time of parting was at hand i may come up with you mayn't i said charlie and Tempy, all changed somehow, gentle and simply yielding, agreed. When did she not agree to Charlie's wishes? To her cousin, she was almost always gentle, though her manner by the rest of the world might have been characterized as bluff. Tempy, fresh and kind-hearted, conceited and diffident too, as such people are, was yielding enough for all her decision to those she loved. She walked on quickly. She did not want to let herself dwell upon Charlie's leave-taking. She forced herself to think of many very tangible preoccupations in the way of those changings and shiftings, flappings and dustings, which in civilized countries herald the approach of new married and other important people. The girl had, among other things, a general cheerful sense of her own importance, and that the world could not possibly get on without her, neither her father nor her stepmother, any more than the very competent housemaids in charge of the place. This conviction was a consolation to her in many of the subsequent trials and disappointments of life, although, in her case, as in other people's, these trials and disappointments often consisted in the fact that she discovered that others could get on without her better than she expected. Could Charlie get on without her? She sometimes asked herself, as she did today again, treading the clover and the meadow sweet, breaking the little twigs from the hedge as she passed, and feeling somehow that today was not like any other day for either of them. Once she looked up. It was for an instant only. She could not meet the force of the fixed gaze that was turned upon her. I'm looking good-bye," said Charlie simply, seeing her blush up. And then again Tempe raised her blue eyes, and he saw in them something so gentle, so innocently tender, that a sudden conviction came over him, some overpowering sense of her goodness and affection, of the reality and all importance of her feeling. What was he, to be loved by so true, so dear a creature, he who had no future to bring her, not even a clear past for her innocent eyes to look through? What was he, to dare to love her? And yet, as he looked, he knew, even without words, that she loved him, and this seemed reason enough, even in his troubled life, for him to try to win her. Tempe, tempe, he said, scarcely knowing what he said. Don't you know what it all means? He spoke with a burst of strange emotion, triumph, and passion. George Tyson, sharpening his scythe, looked up again from the meadow and saw them standing side by side near the brown cow in the upper field. From the boat far away upon the water, Uncle Bolsover could still be heard shouting a cheerful halloo the girl neither heard nor heeded it all. She cared not who was there. She stood passive, stirred by a wonder. Girls think of love as of something all around about in life, in the hearts of others. When they first dimly feel that they too are touched or swept onward by the great tide, their whole girlish heroism rises to assert their independence. For an instant, the lordly Tempe stood with sudden conviction of love in her heart, absolutely sure, outwardly unmoved, silent and still for an instant. Then the whole world burst in upon her senses, the blue sky arching in triumph above her head, the birds flying in the air, the music of life all around, the rustling leaves, the voices floating from the water all seemed but a part of the great thing which had changed the whole of life for her. Charlie's looks, so familiar, so strong, and so gentle, seemed like words to speak, to order, to entreat. Tempe, why don't you answer, he cried. Then she looked up at last. Yes, I know what it means, Charlie, she whispered, and the young fellow overcome and touched to the heart, shaken from self and from his fantastic egotism and fancies, caught her suddenly for an instant. Tempe, you won't let them part us, he cried. We belong to each other now. End of section 12. Recording by Kim Dixon. KimDixonVoices.com.